let me. <laughs> and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all the authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for um, uh, grace from heaven, uh, both to understand, to receive uh, this good news of the gospel of Christ. We pray that you would uh, increase our confidence uh, in the overcoming one, in the conqueror, in our King, uh, Christ Jesus. We pray as well, Lord, that you would teach us how to walk with him by faith, how to walk in the Spirit of God, how to uh, to thwart the, the plans of Satan even as we hold on tightly to uh, the promises of your word. We, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it really is a great privilege to teach uh, seminary students and others who are interested in learning more about the Bible again because this, the classes I was teaching were free to the people there. You had a number of uh, church members that also were able to go throughout the week. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a blast being able to teach uh, any type of theology, but it's uh, it, it truly is a blessing to teach biblical theology. It's a little bit different than systematic theology where you're just teaching the doctrines. Uh, in, in a week, to teach biblical theology, basically what it is, is in, in a nutshell, is teaching them the grand story of the Bible. In a week, you're covering the whole Bible, and you're just telling them the story and how great and marvelous a story it is. And so it's uh, as it's un unfolded throughout the Old and the, and the New Testament, but it's um, it's it's been said that the Old Testament, apart from the New Testament, is really an unfinished story. You really can't take one apart from the other. They're they're meant to go hand in hand. It's um, it's been said it's like a father who who ripped a, sort of a whodunit book in half and gave uh, part of it to his son and part of it to his daughter because they were fighting over the same book. So he's just like, well, you can have, take half of it, and the other one could take the other half. Well, when the son had finished his half of the story, he discovered that. Someone had been killed with a candlestick in the ballroom, but, but he had no idea who had committed the crime. His sister, on the other hand, had finished her part of the story about the same time, and she knew that the butler did it, but she had no idea what he did. Right? So it's uh, very similar if you try to read the Old Testament apart from the New and vice versa. It really doesn't make sense. You need to be able to see the big picture. You need to be able to see the grand story and how it unfolds. Yet using a, a, a different illustration, um, it, when we read the Bible, many of us come and listen to sermons or we uh, will be a part of a Bible study, and we'll see little snippets here and there of, of the story. But we sometimes have a hard time putting it all together. And so, again, biblical theology tries to show you the big picture all at one time. Um, but, but it really is, if you don't see 
how Christ is essential to every aspect of the story, then you miss the, the main point of it. Um, it's Again, it's like uh, kids trying to put together a, a puzzle on a, on a rainy day, and uh, they don't have the, the top of the, the box to see what the picture looks like, right? So they're constantly trying to figure out different colors here and there, and they're trying to put those pieces of, of the puzzle together, but it doesn't make sense until finally uh, one of the children finds the top of the box and says, ah, it's a picture of the king surrounded by his servants. The king is in the middle. That's what we, we need to see. And it, it's very similar in that regard. When you're studying Scripture, if you don't understand that King Jesus is in the middle of this picture, you might have a lot of different things going on, and you might understand a lot about different aspects of, of the Bible and, and theology, but if you don't know the main point of the story, you've missed it, you see. Uh, you have to see how the king is in the middle of the story. It's essentially this grand picture of the Bible, the overarching story. It's all about King Jesus. It's all about uh, the gospel and what he has come to do to overcome this world, to overcome the devil, to overcome sin and death. And, and because of that, we have to understand that in the Bible, Jesus is always the main character, no matter what book of the Bible you're reading. Uh, Jesus is always the main character. Well, and, and we're not. <laughs> That's, it's important for us to understand that. We often go to the Bible reading it thinking that it's all about us, and we try to make it about us when clearly it's not. Uh, uh, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, He says, you search the Scriptures because in, in them you think that you have eternal life, but it's the Scriptures that bear witness about Me. It's all about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you might have life. And then He tells the Israelites, if you believed in Moses, you would believe Me. For he wrote all about me. So he's essentially saying that what Moses is writing about in the law of God and uh, throughout uh, Genesis, it's all about him. And, and, and twice we see in this gospel, in Luke's gospel, at the end of the gospel, the, the very last chapter, chapter 24, he, twice he tells the disciples that all of the Old Testament is written about him. He says both the, the law, the prophets, the writings, the Psalms, it's, it's all about me. He makes it very plain that the point of the story is about the gospel of Christ. And the Apostle Paul agrees, 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, he says, the Holy Scriptures were written for this purpose, to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible and you don't see that, you've missed the main point of the story. It's not just so that you can figure out how to have a better life, or you can gain a little bit of wisdom here and there about how to you know, uh, deal with your, your family members or how to be a better friend. It, it's not that. And so um, uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a, a famous uh, author and pastor. He says, because this is true, when you read the Bible, do not lose sight of Jesus, especially when you're reading the Gospels. Even when we read the Gospels, we have a tendency to make these passages about us rather than about Christ. He says, when, when you're reading the Gospels, especially keep your eyes fixated on Jesus. But you, you'd be surprised how quickly we forget that. We have a tendency to see that it's all about Jesus and then immediately just apply it to us and, and skip over uh, the Jesus part. Even, even in our passage this morning, uh, it'd be really easy for me as a preacher to give you a three-point sermon on how to overcome temptation. In fact, I've heard sermons like this many times, and I've probably have preached them myself. Uh, but I could tell you, like, if I, if I go ahead and gave you my outline for this morning, I'd say, well, here, here, here's how to overcome temptation. Number one, make sure that you're being watchful and, and praying. And you, you fast and pray, right? Now, no, number two, 
uh, make sure that you memorize Scripture so that when Satan comes, you have a word to say, uh, that you can defend yourself and even attack him with the, the Word of God. And then, you know, number three, make sure that you're, uh, you, you know that uh, you, you can't defeat him on your own. If you have to, you flee, you run, whatever it is. All of those are valid points. There's nothing wrong with any of those points. They're absolutely true. They, they, they ought to be followed. But it's not the main point of that passage. And if you miss the main point, and I just tell you, here's how you overcome temptation, that's not what Luke is trying to do here at all. And, and we've missed it if we've missed the gospel of Christ in, in the midst of this story. And so um, because of our sinful, selfish tendency to, is to make the story about us, we immediately start asking, how does this apply to me? What does it, what does it do for me? Uh, somehow it must be about me. And, and, and what I'm trying to assure you is first and foremost, it's not. It's about Jesus. And when you understand that, then it can be applied to you and me. But if we skip over that part, then we've, we've really done ourselves an injustice and we've missed the glory that God wants to reveal to us through the gospel of Christ. And so what we learned from this passage this morning, more than anything else, is that Jesus is the perfect Son of God, the perfect Son of Man. He is the overcoming one. We are not the overcomers. He is the one overcomer. He is the conqueror. He is the, the Savior. He is the prophet, priest, and king that we so desperately need. And here at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, the author is purposely seeking to prove this to us, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that Jesus is the last Adam, that Jesus is the new Israel, that he, he, he does this in a, in a wide variety of ways, but, but first he begins his Gospel with this birth narrative and, and a genealogy just as Matthew does. They both start, sort of start off in this way, but their, their whole purpose is to show the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Now, most of you who, who've read much of the Old Testament uh, probably can tell me what the last book of the Old Testament is. So what most of us would say, Malachi. Well, you'd be right if we're reading the English Bible, that's based upon the Greek translation, which is the Septuagint. But if you read the original Hebrew uh, uh, the compilation, it didn't end with Malachi. It ended with your favorite book of the Bible, Chronicles. Right. Most of you love Chronicles. And the reason why you love Chronicles is because it has at least seven genealogies in it. And you love reading through all those names. Right? In addition, you love to read repetitive material because Chronicles takes a lot of the same material that's in Kings and says it all over again. You love that, do you not? One of your favorite books of the Bible. Well, what you have to understand is it purposely ends that way in the Hebrew Bible to show us we're looking, so that the big difference between Chronicles and Kings is that Kings focuses both on the, the kings of Israel as well as the kings of Judah. Chronicles takes place after the exile in Babylon. And now they're looking to see the, the genealogy of the Judean kings because it's pointing you to the Judean king who's to come, the king of Judah, the line of Judah, right? And you'll notice that it's got all these genealogies in it, and it's pointing to this one king of Judah. Now, if you think about it, when you pick up the New Testament in Matthew, Luke, and you read that apart from understanding that, you have no idea what they're seeking to do. They're starting with genealogies. They're starting with birth narratives. They're starting in a little town in Bethlehem in Judah for the purpose of saying, he has finally come. And if you miss that, you've missed the whole point of the, the start of the New Testament. It, from the very beginning, it's meant to be an exhilarating revelation. 
that everything we have waited for all these years, it's the same continuation of the story. What we have ended with in Chronicles starts with a new genealogy. They're just adding to the, the genealogy of the chronicler. And they're continuing to show us that this is the Jesus who has come. And so just like Chronicles does, Luke goes all the way back to Adam in his genealogy to show us that Jesus is the second Adam. Or as the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the last Adam. And just as the first Adam was tested in the Garden of Eden, so now the last Adam also must be tested in order to begin his public ministry before men. Just as Adam, if you remember, was blessed by God in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, uh, chapter 3 of Luke begins with Jesus being blessed by God. He is the beloved Son of God, just as Adam was in the garden. Jesus is pronounced to be the blessed Son of God. And this voice from heaven at his baptism is saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. But now the question is, would he remain so? Would he continue to be the beloved, chosen Son of God? Well, now he has to be tested to see if he can pass the test when Adam could not, when Israel could not. Would Jesus be able to pass the test? And so we see that is why the Lord is the one who purposely, filling him with the Holy Spirit, leads him into the wilderness in order to be tested. This is not something that Satan has just come up with all on his own. This is something that God has purposely brought about to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's interesting because uh, this is one passage for sure that we know that there were no disciples around to witness it. So Jesus must have told them directly, this is how it occurred. This is what happened. Now, again, let's not think for a moment that this was a surprise to Jesus. This was part of his calling from the beginning. Just as the Lord initiated the conversation with the devil in the book of Job, basically saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Well, in the same way, he's saying, have you considered my son Jesus? I want you to test him. I want to give you free reign to go after him. Uh, and I'll prove to you that he is my beloved son. But there's a difference here. Unlike uh, Job, who is being tested in the midst of his prosperity, and unlike Adam, who is being tested in the, the bliss of the Garden of Eden, Jesus is purposely led out into the wilderness, into the, into the wasteland, to be tempted when he has nothing, uh, nothing to... Uh, to help him in any way. And I, I have to point out the wilderness in Israel is not like the wilderness in Michigan. It's a little different. Uh, the wilderness in Michigan, you have trees everywhere. You probably can find food of some kind. But in the wilderness in Judea, uh, I've been there. It's, uh, it's quite barren. Uh, if you like rocks, you'll love it there. It's pretty much just sand and rocks and, and not a whole lot else. Uh, you're not going to find any food to eat. Uh, you might find one thing uh, 30 miles away, but you're not going to find anything that's going to lead to life and, and blessing. And so when Jesus is reenacting the trial of the Israelites in the desert, he's purposely led into this wasteland uh, to show, again, that his, his power, his authority as the, the Savior of the world is proven through his righteousness, through the midst of this temptation. So in addition to that, uh, he also is fasting for 40 days and, and 40 nights. So in addition to having no food, he's withholding food from himself to dedicate himself more to the Lord to prepare himself for this exact test. So, so in this time of deprivation, Jesus is the most vulnerable that a human could ever be. I mean, he is weak. Again, he, he is fully God, but he's still fully human. He's, he's weak. He's 
hungry. Luke makes a point of saying, essentially, he's very hungry. And the very first thing that we see then is Satan coming to tempt him in, in regards to that problem. So again, just as Jesus is the final Adam, he's also the true Israel, the, the firstborn son, the beloved uh, chosen by God. Notice carefully that every time the devil seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus is not merely quoting Scripture to him, but he's particularly quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Again, I always point out that that's, I'm sure, one of your favorite books. You've probably memorized more Scripture in Deuteronomy than any other book of the Bible. Not. But there's a reason why Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy, and particularly quoting from chapter 6 through 8 of Deuteronomy, because this is a summation for the second generation of Israelites of how to keep the law of God as a man. In, in, in contrast to the first generation who had completely denied the Lord and walked away into idolatry and they all had died in the wilderness, now this second generation has the hope that maybe if we keep the law, then we will be that blessed generation. Uh, but again, what we see is that second generation falls into the same sin and we see the, the same problems. But the point of this is to show that Jesus is that promised generation. He is the head of a new race. The reason why he is baptized in the Jordan River is not because he ascended, but because he is the head of a new race of people that are going to be baptized into his name. He is the new man. He is the last Adam. And all those who are believers in the Lord Jesus are baptized into his name that they might know that this is the conquering one. This is the one who has gone before us in our footsteps. Of course, the, the, the second generation in Deuteronomy didn't keep that. And so each time Jesus is, is, is quoting from that book to show this is what is written, this is what is required, this is what I have come to do, I have come to do the Father's will. And so it's very, very, again, Luke, the way Luke is recording all of this is to help us to see that, as Jesus himself said, what Moses wrote about, he wrote about me. The book of Deuteronomy is not about the second generation. It's about Jesus, the second race of men with, with uh, the new Adam as the head of that race. But notice in verse 3 that the, the, the very first thing that the devil challenges Jesus on, he's casting doubt upon his calling as this last Adam, as this special beloved Son of God, by saying to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Again, the Father has just spoken from heaven saying, you are my Son. And the very first thing that Satan says, if you are, right? He's already casting doubt on whether or not he is the true Son of God. Uh, but again, Luke has told us that, that Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He's very hungry. The very fact that God allows his Son to hunger in this way is what Satan is pointing out. He's saying, if you really were the Son of God, God would care for you. He wouldn't allow you to suffer in this way. Again, Satan is lying through his teeth. He's the father of lies. It's what he does. But he's casting aspersion upon his calling as a son, saying God wouldn't allow his son to suffer in this way, so therefore prove that you are God's son by bringing this bread out of stone. Again, commanding the bread to become stone. Now, most of us would not have a problem being tempted by Satan in this way because we can't command stones to become bread. So we would be in no danger of, of, of sinning against God in this manner because we, we can't do that. But the very fact that Satan says this to him proves that Jesus is the Son of God because he alone can speak to creation and have it obey his wishes, right? We see that at the, 
during the time of the, the storm at the sea, immediately Jesus just commands the winds and the waves to be still. And immediately they obey his voice. In the same way, Satan knows that all Jesus has to do is command creation to change just at his word alone, and then it will obey him. And that's the thing about it. Jesus himself knows that. Jesus knows that he has this power. He knows he has this authority. And that's the very point of the temptation, is to see whether or not he will use his power and authority against his Father. Instead of submitting to his Father's righteous will, that he would take matters into his own hands, you see. Again, the Father's purpose in this 40 days is to have him tested to see whether or not he will obey when Adam did not, when Israel did not. And when all others had fallen, would he overcome in that regard to prove uh, that he is the Son of God? For Jesus to go against that, he would be short-circuiting the trial. He would be going against his Father's wishes to provide for his own needs rather than allowing the Father to provide for him. Of course, that was both the sin of Adam as well as the sin of Israel. Both cases... They were demanding food over obedience to God's Word. In fact, the last time I was with you a few weeks ago, when we were talking about uh, when, when the, the deacons were being ordained before you, I had brought up the fact uh, how interesting it is that both the role of the elder as well as the deacon were formed because people were complaining about food. If you think about it, there would be no elder role today if, if the Old Testament Israelites had not complained they didn't have enough food. In the same way the deacon role would not exist today if the, 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 uh, the widows weren't being overlooked for their food. And so the very fact that you have elders and deacons today prove to you that none of us have passed the test. So the very fact that you have an elder and deacon tells you you're a sinner still, that you need someone to minister to you in, in the stead of Christ Jesus. However, uh, Jesus is the only one who has never sinned in this way. He has never fallen. He has never uh, complained or, or, or grumbled or has, has gone against his father's wishes. And so in this particular case, we see that when uh, God, uh, when the devil speaks to Jesus and, and tells him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread, Jesus immediately quotes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, saying this, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. For just as God had provided the manna from heaven in, in the wilderness and had provided the quail as well, uh, he can so provide for our needs. We don't have to uh, demand these things from God, that God will provide them for us when we ask him humbly, uh, but that, that God will bring us that comfort, that God will bring us that strength in the midst of our weakness. Uh, but then, then notice next in Luke's gospel, he, his order is a little bit different th from Matthew's. Matthew's is chronologically correct. Matthew's focusing on this happened and then this happened. Luke is giving us more of a, a, a visual picture instead. But in Luke's gospel, the devil then takes Jesus up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a, in a moment of time. Again, uh, we're not talking about uh, the devil literally walking with Jesus up a mountain and then showing him from Mount Everest all the kingdoms of the world. It's, 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 it's probably not even possible, physically speaking, uh, in that sense. But rather, takes him in the form of a vision. In fact, the language that's used is very similar to what the prophets see at times when they're brought up a high place and they're able to see things very far away. Uh, but in this particular case, what we find is that even in the vision itself, even in the dream, if you will, Jesus doesn't sin against God. Jesus doesn't uh, sin in his thoughts, in his, in his inner uh, um, 
mind, if you will. Uh, think about it, even, even us, when we're not intending to sin, even when we're uh, not uh, outwardly sinning, something s- still happens inwardly within us that is soiled, that is dirty, that's not right as it should be. We find that uh, even in our dreams, sometimes our dreams show us where our heart really is. Uh, I often said that uh, when we have a person who has Alzheimer's later in life, sometimes we'll find that without the filter that we have today, you'll find a person saying things, evil things, that they never would have said in their real life, but there's still something within the heart that is not right. But we find that even even in this vision, even in this dream, when the devil's trying to tempt him in some way to to show weakness, again, he's still not giving in to the devil. In this instance, Satan is offering to give him all the kingdoms of the world, but uh, apart from suffering, apart from God's calling upon his life, apart from God's uh, desire to have him go through the the ministry of suffering and and ultimately crucifixion, death on the cross. If you remember in Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 19 and 20, at the giving of the Great Commission, uh, after Jesus has been resurrected from the grave, uh, we see uh, the Lord Jesus is saying, the Father has now given me all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all men. So he knows that that authority and that power is coming. Uh, But again, Satan is trying to short-circuit that and trying to give it to him now apart from suffering, to bypass the crucifixion altogether. All he has to do is to bow the knee to Satan instead. But, But the Lord doesn't believe this even for a moment. Again, Satan is the father of lies constantly lying to us, making us think that there's something uh, good in what he has to offer. Uh, the dev- uh, Jesus can see right through the devil's lies. Uh, even though it's true that the devil does have some power, he does seem to express some authority, he is called the prince of this world after all. Uh, but it's always under God's prerogative. It's always under God's providence. It's always under God's Uh, righteous rule. There's nothing the devil can do or say apart from God's holy will, which is why Satan has to come and ask permission to tempt someone. Well, in the same way, we see here that what the devil is is telling Jesus is a lie. He doesn't have the power to give uh, authority and power at his pleasure to anyone he wants. Again, it has to come from God. Jesus knows that. So again, he rejects that outright and says to him in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So in the the original context, the Lord had given Israel houses to live in uh, that they didn't build. The Lord had given Israel vineyards to eat from that they they didn't plant. And he's saying, but be careful when this second generation goes into Israel not to forget the Lord your God, not to worship idols, but rather to remember God the Lord your God, and to worship him alone. When the same way, uh, the Satan is trying to give Jesus things that he hasn't earned. Trying to give it to him freely that he might forget the Lord is God. And he says, no, I, I won't do that. I will only do what I've come to do, which is my Father's will. So once again, he shuts the devil down. So on the third occasion, the devil's learning from Jesus as he learns from us. Again, the Satan has had many, many years to study human nature, has many opportunities to study us as individuals, at least as minions do. I I sincerely doubt that most of us will ever be tempted by the devil himself. We'll have much lesser underlings that will come after us, but shows how weak we are that we would be tempted to give in to them. 
But nevertheless, on this third occasion, because Jesus twice has quoted from Scripture, twice has quoted from the book of Deuteronomy, Jesus, uh, the devil himself now says, it is written. He's using Jesus' own uh, methods here and says it's written. And this time he's quoting from the passage that David read to us early in Psalm 91, uh, verses 11 and 12, where he says that uh, the Lord will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, uh, this isn't a, a promise in, in Scripture that no matter what happens, no matter what you do, that God will always protect you. Obviously, there are many righteous men who have suffered great loss and have even lost their lives, uh, even under God's good pleasure. Uh, but the way Satan is using this is, is, is making it a promise that always stands, and even to the fact that we can tempt God, we can test God by his own word rather than the other way around. Again, Jesus responds by saying to Satan, well, it is written or it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which again comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. This time in reference to, you remember at Meribah and Massa, uh, again, where they didn't have water to drink and they immediately began to complain. But this time, in addition to their complaining, they tested God and they said, is God really among us or not? And in that particular instance, what they were doing was basically saying, God needs to prove himself to us. We're testing him. He's not testing us. We're testing him. Is he faithful or not? Is he good or not? Again, the whole point of of Scripture is to reveal God to us through his own word. And he has already said, I am faithful. I am good. I am righteous. I'll always do what is right. The very fact that we're doubting that and saying, you have to prove it to us. Now, who's the, who's the tester and who's the testee, you see? So it's, it's really turning the tables upside down. But I can guarantee you that every single person in this room has done that. We all have sought to put God to the test. In fact, you, you see it even more clearly uh, with unbelievers, uh, even more than believers. They'll, they'll do something like this. They'll do this wagering of some kind and say, well, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. But you prove yourself first, and then maybe, maybe I'll worship you. Maybe I'll serve you in, in some way or another. But, but even as Christians, there have been times where we have done something similar, where we have uh, challenged God's goodness. We have questioned God's love. We have doubted God's faithfulness and his power. And as a result, we have put God to the test. But again, in this particular instance, Jesus refuses to do that, knowing that, that God can save him at any moment, but that he's not required to do so. In fact, do you remember later on um, in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember when um, the, the temple servants had come to take Jesus captive and Peter took out his sword and was ready to cut off the ear of, 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 of the servant and, and Jesus told him to put away his sword? And he says to him, essentially, the words, do you think that I cannot appeal to the Father at any moment? and a whole legion of angels will come to rescue me. He knows that it's possible. All he has to do is give the command, and all these angels will come to minister to him. But at the same time, he knows that it is his Father's will that he undergo this suffering. So again, even though he can turn rocks to bread, even though he can jump off temples and be rescued, even though he can receive all the kingdoms of this world, all he has to do is say the word, the test in every one of these situations is whether or not he will submit to the Father's will. 
whether or not he will humble himself before God's purpose. Whether or not in each situation he will prove that God's Word is always right. Always. If you think about it, every single temptation you have ever faced, every single time in which you have sinned against God, more than anything else, it's because simply you have denied God's Word. You have rejected God's will. And in each of these cases, we see that the Lord Jesus has overcome. He has won against the devil and against his temptations. And so we finally see in verse 13, Luke tells us, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. But it's the, it's the very next verse, verse 14, that I find astounding because it's different than we see in any other context in reference to temptation for men. Because then it tells us that Jesus then returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. After Adam was tempted in the Garden of Eden, he was forced to leave the Garden of Eden in shame apart from the filling of the Spirit. The same way we see Israel was walking around in the desert without the the fullness of of the Spirit after having fallen into sin. Same way, we could talk about Noah and his drunken stupor. We could talk about David and his adultery. In each case, every single time that man has been tempted, he has lost the fullness of the Spirit because he has denied the very Word of God. Jesus alone, at the end of the temptation, at the fierceness of the temptation that he receives at the hands of the devil, even afterwards, the devil gives up. He walks away. And Jesus is still full of the Spirit of God. He is the overcomer, you see. The whole point of this passage is to prove that to us, to encourage us in our union with Christ Jesus by faith that we have one who has overcome the devil in our place. Even when we have not, even when we have fallen short of God's glory again and again, the Lord Jesus has won the victory in our stead. Now, this is where we come into the story. Because of Christ's righteousness, because He has overcome the schemes of the devil, because He has succeeded where we have failed, we have hope that He has earned the right to ascend God's holy hill. He has earned the right to enter into God's holy courts. He has earned the right to God's favor and fellowship and love and blessing. He gives that to us freely if we come in the name of Christ. If we trust in Christ, we rest in His merits. Because the perfected Christ has come down to lay His life down for sinners, to share His victory over sin and death, we too can rest in His laurels and have confidence before a holy God that even when we have sinned, our standing is not based upon our victories, but upon Christ's perfection, even as we walk in the shadow of death. After teaching and preaching in Colombia, in Cartagena, which is the the city that's on the coast there that we were at uh, for a number of days, um, I wanted to take the girls to see something of the countryside. And so um, we took a bus uh, a couple hours away, and we went to Tirona National Park. And uh, I, I think most of you know that when I started my ministry, I started in Yellowstone National Park. I was a chaplain there. So I was like, well, let's go to the park. And so we did. And it's a very, very beautiful, very interesting place. Although it's on the, still on the coast of the Caribbean Sea, 
uh, you are at the tallest mountain near uh, anywhere near the sea at all. And so it goes from sea level to 3,000 feet very quickly. And uh, again, great hike, great, beautiful place to go. But if you're an American who doesn't know the metric system very well, you really have no idea how far you're going or how long this hike is going to last. You also don't know how quickly the terrain goes up and down and up and down again and again. And no matter how much time you've spent on the treadmill, which I have, going uphill, I had no problems. But going downhill, uh, your muscles began to give out and you're exhausted and you didn't realize that you had to climb a mountain to get down to see this beautiful beach, but then you had to climb another mountain to get to the next one and then another one and, and on and on, right? So, and then you also forget that you're near the equator and that it's just hot and that you're in the jungle and so it's just humid and it's just miserable. You're surrounded by beauty, but you're absolutely miserable in every possible way. And you forget also that the sun goes down two hours earlier there than it does here. And so you think you have time to finish this hike, but you do not. Terona is not like the wilderness of Judea, nor is it like Michigan. Um, it's not filled with rocks or uh, trees uh, in the same way that it would be here. Um, it does have food. Um, you at one point, we're hiking along, and I found some mango trees and some bananas. I was hungry. I ate. No problem. Didn't have to command anything to turn into anything else. And although you're surrounded by this lush vegetation and the incessant singing of birds, um, you also see other types of wildlife. You, you, every now and then, you'll see a monkey or lizards crossing your path or, or uh, numerous ants carrying leaves on their backs in a long train somewhere. Really fascinating, if you will. But there's some very disturbing sounds that remind you that you're not in a safe place. This is not the Garden of Eden after all. And so every now and then you come around the bend, and all of a sudden you, you hear this loud sound of insects that basically says, do not come here, we're going to eat you alive, right? So you get that part, and then finally uh, we come around uh, another bend, and this happens to us about three or four times all of us could swear uh, that we're about to be attacked by a jaguar. This growling sound sounds horrible. Um, my, my wife and my daughter were very uh, certain that it was a jaguar or a puma or something. I kept telling them, it's not a jaguar because I have a jaguar collar that I use that actually makes the, the attack sound of a jaguar. But it wasn't an attack sound. It was just a, a, a really loud growling sound. And every time you're about to come around the bend, it seemed, it happened about four times, you're afraid to go around the bend because you can't see. You don't know what's there, and the, the vegetation's so thick, anything could be hiding back there. And so the girls kept saying, well, why don't we just turn around? It's like, you can't turn around because you'll never make it out of here and we'll all die. You have to go forward. You have to keep going forward. So we all picked up rocks, and, and I, you know, I started making the weird obscene sounds that men make when they're scared. <laughs> rah, 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 you know, thinking that I'm going to somehow scare whatever the creature this is that's uh, going to eat us all alive. And um, anyway, long story short, it, it, no matter what noises I made, this thing would not stop growling. And, and we just keep walking forward and walking forward and very slowly. And, and um, eventually we made it down that mountain again, back to the beach again, and got out of that area. 
uh, later we looked it up online and found out it wasn't a jaguar after all. Uh, it was a howler monkey that doesn't eat people at all. But apparently it is the loudest land animal on earth. You can hear it three miles away growling. And it just kept going. And you're like, what is that? You have to, you, you have to look it up online. You'll, you'll see. If you hear that and you're in a jungle and you don't know where you are and the sun's starting to go down, you could see why we were scared if that's the case. But anyway, long story short, we made it down the second mountain after about killing ourselves and we finally get to the beach area and we found the touristy area. And we, 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 I sort of felt like we felt like Pilgrim's Progress a little bit. We got this heavy burden on our back. We have sweat stains like we've never seen sweat stains before. I mean, our shirts are just filthy and every possible. We look like we're homeless people who haven't seen the light of day in weeks. We've only been gone like seven hours, maybe. And everybody on the, on the beach, they're all these people in their skimpy bathing suits, and they're just lying around just enjoying the sun. And, and we're like, <laughs> get me out of here. And uh, anyway, long story short, we find out that after the second mountain, we finally descended six, seven hours later. Uh, finally, someone speaks English. and says, oh, yeah, you're not far away. You're only about another three hours to the park exit. And there is no way that's going to happen. Our muscles are just completely worn in every possible way. And the person tells us, uh, by the way, that third part of the hike is, has been flooded. So you're, you're going to be walking through about two or three feet of water. And it's full of crocodiles. So um, someone offers to uh, get us a boat ride out of there for $60. is the best $60 I have ever spent by far. Um, and the whole time you're on the boat, the water's just spraying your face. You're like, oh, this is so great. What's my point with all this? Um, I, I want to make sure I don't mischaracterize it because some people may misuse it. Satan has a tendency to even misuse good sermon illustrations. Um, but I would say it this way, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Even though Satan does howl, and growl, and is looking for someone to devour. And it's absolutely true. He devours unsaved men and women every single day. Because Jesus Christ is the overcomer, his growl is much more like a howl or monkey than it is like a lion to us this day. Now, don't get me wrong. As we're walking along the path, there at least one time there's a snake in the middle of our path. I'm, like, I'm not messing with that. Take a rock, throw it, get rid of the snake. And I'm not about to go down some path that I know a gator's going to be sitting there, or a crocodile's going to be sitting there in my path. So I, I, you run when you have the opportunity to run. Don't test Satan, right? But at the same time, when you're walking along your road of life and, and Satan is attacking and is tempting you, and, and even the times in which you have fallen into temptation, because Jesus is our overcomer. He is our conqueror. No matter what growling Satan does, no matter what he accuses you of, no matter how he slanders your name, it's just a bark. That's all he's got. He can't hurt you. The Lord is our Savior. He is our, our King. He has done it all. And that should comfort you. Now again, we can have another sermon on, on, on fasting and prayer and 
and another sermon on, on how we ought to be watchful and, and praying in that regard. And all of that's absolutely true. But you first and foremost, you must know that Jesus is your overcomer. Apart from that, you can work all you want. You can pray till you're blue in the face and you'll have no confidence. You'll have no peace, no rest until you know that Jesus has stood in your place, has taken your punishment, and has won the battle. And because of that, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through our faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to hold tightly to Jesus Christ, to cling to Him by faith, to know indeed that He is the Savior of the world, that He has gone toe-to-toe with the devil and not once faltered, not once been spoilt by those temptations, but has proven Himself perfect in every way, obeying Your will at every turn. Lord, we know that that doesn't give us any cause whatsoever to, to walk in sin headlong knowing that we have forgiveness of sins, but rather to know that even when we have fallen, even when we are weak, even when, when Satan accuses us and points out our sin, to know that there is a, a heavenly confidence that, be, that can be given to the children of God and, and already has been given through faith and the promises of God that are in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know that all of those promises are yes and amen in His name and in His name alone. And to rest in that truth, to know that we have one who has conquered the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name.